Our passage today is from Jonah chapter 3, starting with verse 6. Jonah 3, verse 6. Before we begin, let's go to God in prayer. Gracious Father, you have revealed your word to us in your holy scriptures. And through faith in Jesus Christ, you have poured out your spirit on us that we might understand. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to know your will for our lives. That is the way we should walk in your ways, the way we should live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are back in Jonah. It's been a couple of weeks, so I'm going to get us back, back into the mindset of Jonah. Very quickly, the super quick overview. Jonah 1, Jonah hears the word of God and he rebels from God. Then Jonah gets thrown over the side of a ship, and as he's sinking down into the depths of the, of the sea, and he's dying, he utters his last prayer to God as the God of his salvation, and he's swallowed up by a great fish. He's in the belly of the fish for three days, and he's vomited up onto land, and here is Jonah again, the second time the word of God comes to Jonah, and this time Jonah goes out through the city of Nineveh, this great and evil city, and he proclaims a message of destruction for Nineveh, and Nineveh believes God. He goes through the city and Nineveh believes God. And that's where we left off in verse 5. So this super fast forward version of Jonah. Now something kind of confusing happens between verse 5 and verse 6. And so I want to talk about this real quick. So a lot of times a Hebrew author will give the whole story, a very broad account of the story, kind of like what I just did, right? So Jonah went through the city he proclaimed the message of God, and Nineveh believed the word of God. That's the broad story. And then in verse 6, we see a change in the point of view. We see something where we're going in to see the details from a certain perspective. So that's sort of the device that's going on. It's the same thing that happens in Genesis 1. So you have the creation of everything. God rests, and everything is created. And then in Genesis 2, you have the specific account of Adam and Eve created. You have the details of, of what happened in chapter 1. That's what's happening here between verses 5 and verses 6. So in verses 5, we're in the city of Nineveh, in the streets of Nineveh, and now in verse 6, we're going into the throne room of Nineveh with the king to see things from his perspective. So hear the word of God from Jonah chapter 3, starting with verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sackcloth. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, 
God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. The king of Nineveh doesn't seem to be a particularly good king. He doesn't seem to be getting much right. Uh, he's probably evil and wicked and violent. His evil and wicked and violent because his kingdom is evil and wicked and violent. He's not getting much right, but what he does get right is right here in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What is he getting right here? That people perish in the face of the fierce anger of God. He gets that right. You know, when we face the wrath of God, as we know it, is about to come to an end. That's just a reality. It was a reality for Nineveh. It's a reality for us. But how is Nineveh delivered? The Word of God. Just like Pastor John said a few weeks ago, the Word did it all. The Word did it all. But what exactly did the Word do here in Nineveh? What we have here in Nineveh is an amazing, incredible revival. 120,000 people believe God and turn from their sins. This is a large-scale revival. It's huge. I would hope that we would all be praying for revival. We don't, maybe we don't often think of revival, or maybe we think of big tents and sweaty people. I don't know. Maybe we don't think of revival the right way. But what is revival? Revival is the transformation of hearts. It's the increase in the number of people worshiping God and giving God glory that he is due. It's an increase in God's glory. And that's what we have here today. 120,000 people now believing God, now submitting themselves to God. This is revival. Can you imagine if the word of God came out from this pulpit into the ears of these pews and revival just starts spilling out into Monroe and West Monroe and Calhoun and Delhi and Sterlington and all over? Some people accuse me of getting too excited about things, but <laughs> it's a big deal. And it's a really big idea. And we might kind of think of this idea and think, well, that's, that's too much, Scott. That's too much. And we do need to scale back a little bit to really understand what revival is. So revival consists of the transformation of individual hearts. There's no transformation, there's no revival. It's individuals. You know, the buildings don't repent in Nineveh. The cattle aren't really repenting in Nineveh. We don't see a culture repent, but we see individual people turning from their sins, and turning to God. That's the reality of revival. It's individuals turning to God. And it's a lot of individuals turning to God. That's what we have today. So in our passage today, as we go from this broad picture of revival in the city, and we go to focus now on revival from a particular perspective in the throne room, we can see three things. That Revival requires recognition, repentance, and relationship. Revival requires recognition, repentance, and relationship. 
And real quick, before we get started, just so we're all clear, I'm not saying that revival starts with the king. Revival starts with the word of God. But we get to see the revival from the perspective of the king as we go from the streets of Nineveh to the throne room of Nineveh. And as we go into the throne room of Nineveh, here with the king, we see first that revival requires recognition. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. Here he is in his throne room, and he has, uh, he's recognizing something, and this is very important. He's recognizing his own state of sinfulness. Remember, this is Nineveh, the, the great and evil city. He's recognizing his own state of sinfulness. And that's a problem. Remember, that's why the wrath of God is coming, because of the evil ways of Nineveh. It's no surprise to the king that Nineveh is evil. He knows himself. He knows his nobles. He knows his people. He's seen their actions. They have a reputation. Verse 8, he says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. The message of Jonah doesn't say anything about evil or violence. The king knows what their actions are. And so he recognizes that the problem he recognizes that that's his own personal problem. Right? So right off the bat, we see that it's important to recognize our own state. You know, Scripture says that if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us, and we call God a liar. That's what the king of Nineveh is realizing right now. These actions, these violent and wicked ways, they're a problem. This is our reputation as a people. This is a problem. The prophet Nahum would describe Nineveh this way. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end of the prey. It's no surprise to the king that they're wicked and evil. But now he's recognizing that there's a problem with this sin. And that is the reason that the wrath of God comes. So first, we must recognize the problem of our own sin, revival. And then we need to recognize why sin is a problem. Sin, in this case, is a particular problem because the fierce anger of God is coming for Nineveh. And as I said earlier, nothing stands in the fierce anger of God. Right? Our God is a consuming fire. And so first, for revival to take place, we have to recognize our own state of sin, and we have to recognize the consequences of sin. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. We need to recognize that if we're ever to hope for any kind of revival. Because remember, revival is the transformation of an individual. This knowledge of the destruction that's coming is really a blessing for Nineveh. This is a blessing from God, because now they know. Now they have this fuel, if you will, to fuel their repentance. And that's the second requirement of revival, is repentance. The word of God reaches the king, and he arises from his throne, and he takes off his robe, and he sits in an ash heap. 
He goes from his throne to the ash heap. So the first thing that we can see is that repentance must be intentional. Right? The king arises intentionally and takes these actions. Nobody's forcing the king to do these things. He understands the problem of his sin, and he turns from it. It's intentional. Every time someone arises in Jonah, something intentional happens. Have you noticed that? If you go to chapter 1, verse 1, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. Chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 3, what does Jonah do? He rises up and he flees away from the presence of God. That's intentional action. Then again in chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And what does Jonah do? Verse 3, he rises up and he takes intentional action as he goes into the city of Nineveh. Then in verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, the word reaches the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he takes action. The word comes and he takes action. Right? Repentance has to be intentional. It's not forced. God doesn't force us to repent, but he gives us some pretty good reasons to repent to help us make our decision, doesn't he? Intentional repentance is important, but what's important also to understand is that repentance has to come from the heart. It's not the actions of the king that is stopping God. It's not his physical actions. It's not that he took his robe off and put on sackcloth. It's not that he left his throne and went to the ash heap. These are all signs of the state heart. Repentance is an action of the heart. Repentance is a state of the heart that works its way out into the physical world in ways that people can see, invisible changes. That's why we get to see these things that the king is doing. He's taking an intentional turn in his heart to turn to God. So what is he doing as he's taking off his robes? sackcloth. He's giving up things that are his right by way of the world. His intention is reflected as he rejects the privilege that the world says is rightfully his. He's the king, right? He can wear royal robes. There's no problem with that. But because of the state of his heart, he removes those robes and puts on sackcloth. He denies the privilege that the world gives him and shows his humility, saying, I'm no longer fit to wear these robes. That now. He gets up from the throne, right, the seat of power, and he goes to sit in an ash heap. He's giving up his privilege to sit and rule over Nineveh and saying, God, I no longer or I, I realize that I am not worthy to sit in the seat of power. You see, the, the state of the king's heart works its way out in physical ways. We're physical creatures, so we should expect that. So first, repentance should be intentional, and repentance must come from the heart and work its way out in actions that the world notices, in actions that the world sees. So we know that repentance is important. But it doesn't stop in the throne room, right? The word of God comes to the throne room, goes from 
the king to the nobles and out into the people, a proclamation. Now remember, it's not the proclamation of the king that brings about this revival, it's the word of God. Jonah's been preaching through the whole city, but from the king's perspective, that word comes, and then we can see now in the throne room requires relationship. So first, revival requires recognition, the problem of our sin. Second, revival requires a true repentance of the heart, that is, turning from our sin to God, truly in our heart. And third, that revival requires relationship. And we can see that in the relationship of the king to the people. And as we consider that, there's two things I want you to keep in mind that relationships involve authority and relationships involve submission. Every relationship involves authority and submission in some way, and I'll show you how. The word of the Lord reaches the king, and that's the start of all the action, okay? So the first relationship that we come to is the king's relationship with God, Revival requires personal, rightly ordered relationships with God, number one. This is always a relationship of submission, okay? There's the authority of God, and we submit to that authority. Well, how do we see that in our passage? All of the action takes place as the king submits himself to the word of God. That's the same way that we, to the word of God. That's the same way that we establish a right relationship with God, faith in Jesus Christ and then submitting our lives to him through what scripture tells us. That's the way we go. This is our guide. And so we have a rightly ordered relationship with God, submitting ourselves to the word of God through reading the word of God, through studying the word of God, through hearing the word of God preached, And at that point, when we hear things in Scripture that don't conform, or we see things in our lives that don't conform with what Scripture tells us, then we need to change those ways. We need to turn from those ways and turn to the ways of God. That's repentance, right? That's our submitting our lives to the way of God. That's what the king does. He hears the word of God, he recognizes the problem, and he leaves his throne of authority. So first, a rightly ordered relationship with God, but that's not the only relationship that we have in our passage. There's several other relationships, right? There's a relationship of the king to the nobles and the people, and then you have the relationship of the people to the nobles and the king. That's authority and submission, right? The king is in a clear spot of authority in our passage today. He's in a, a very public position, right? He's, a, he's got a special position as king. You know, whenever somebody does something in the royal family, it's like big news, right? We all want to know what's the royal family doing. It was no different. It's, been that way all the, it's, it's always been that way. Being a king is a public position. And so the actions of the king have a lot of influence on the people, The king has heard the word and submitted himself to the word of God, and he is taking action to repent. No doubt the people see this. It would be shocking to see a king leave his throne 
to see a king strip off his royal robe and sackcloth. That would be scandalous to see the king humble himself like that. But the king has authority and the king has influence. He's got this special position. But he doesn't just have this sort of public position in the, in the eyes of the, of the people. He also has a special privilege in the lives of the people. He, he sets forth a proclamation, right? By the decree of the king and of the nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. His proclamation doesn't make much sense if he's not doing it himself. But he has a special position and a special right as a king to make proclamations to the people, right? The king has authority. He has a special position and he has special privilege. Now, what does that have to do with us, right? I don't think anybody in here is a king. I don't know if anybody, maybe somebody knows a king. Uh, Maybe, I don't know. But here's the thing. The king has authority. The king has influence in the lives of people. So maybe we can look at our own lives and see where might we have clearly defined authority and where might we have clear influence in the lives of other people. Are you a manager or a business owner? Do you have employees? Clearly, you have authority over somebody else and how they behave and what they do. Clearly, you have influence over how they work. King, you have authority. Are you an elder of this church? Scripture says clearly that you have authority in this church. You have the authority, a special position, and so you need to live a godly life. You need to make sure you're submitted to the word of God. That's important. But you also have a special privilege, and that is to shepherd the flock, to watch over the lives of this congregation spiritually, physically. We have deacons. That's our special privilege as elders, And as someone goes and strays from the ways of God that Scripture lays down for us, as someone stops submitting themselves to the will of God, it's the elder's special privilege to go and get them, to go and say something. As Jude says, to snatch them from the fire. That's a special position and privilege of elders. You have authority. Now what about parents? Scripture says that you have special authority, parents. You have a special position in the lives of your children. They're always watching you. And so you need to make sure you're submitted to the word of God so that what your children see is a godly example. But you also have a special privilege as parents to disciple your children, to raise them up in the true faith, to inoculate them from the indoctrination of the world by teaching them the doctrine of the scriptures of God. And when your children stray, when they do what they're not supposed to do, what should you do? Well, we discipline them. We guide them. We lovingly and graciously call them back to the way of God, making a proclamation. Maybe you don't make your kids fast, but, you know, you're correcting them. You have authority in your children's lives. 
Now, what about husbands? You have authority in the lives of your wives. Scripture says that you do. That you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. What does Christ strive to do for the church but to present us holy and blameless before God? And so as a husband, you should submit yourself to the word of God. You have a special position in the life of your wife, in the life of your children. Commit yourself to God's word and to live a godly example for your wives. And if your wife is straying from the way of God, you're to lovingly call them back, to graciously correct them. Just like the king calls out to the people, you have authority. Now, what if you're not any of these? What if you don't fall into any of these categories? Well, let's look at where we have influence. Because where we have influence in somebody's life is where we have authority in somebody's life. Do you have influence in the lives of your friends? Yeah, you do. Do you have influence in the lives of your neighbors or your coworkers or the people that you might think are your equals? Yes, you have influence in their lives. And so I'm going to say that you have authority. And you have a special position and privilege in the lives of other people. And if you see other people straying from the way of God, it's your responsibility to say something. Remember, Jude says, snatch them from the fire, those who are sinning. Remember to do it gently and graciously. But in short, if you find yourself in a position of authority, it's your responsibility to open your mouth and say something. To call whoever it is that you have a relationship with back to the ways of Scripture, gently and graciously. Now, I said relationships require authority and submission. So let's go back to our text. Who's in a relationship of submission in our text? The subjects of the king, right? The subjects of Nineveh are subjected to the king. They're submitted to the king. So, you know, the people of Nineveh, they could have, they could have responded differently, right? They listened to the proclamation of the submit themselves to the proclamation of the king, but they could have rebelled. They could have revolted and said, nope, we're an evil and violent city, and you're no longer our king. But they don't do that. So we see something really important in these relationships is that on one side we have authority, but maybe even more important and more powerful than the authority is the relationship of submission. Because the king's authority is no good if Nineveh rebels against the king, it means nothing. So for the king to have authority, the people need to submit. Let's go back to our relationships. Who's in a position of submission to the elders of the church? The congregation. If the congregation doesn't submit to the elders who have authority, what good is it? If we don't submit to our elders who are trying to guide us spiritually, trying to call us back into the ways of God, if we sin and an elder says, brother, sister, this is a problem. Look what scripture says. 
and we ignore it, and we don't submit to it, and we don't change our ways, what good is it? It's no good. It's no good for us anyway, right? What about parents? And who submits to parents? Are you ready, children? Children? You listening? You listening? Here it comes. Submitting to your parents means that you listen to your parents. And when you do something that's not right or something that's against what Scripture tells us, you say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and you listen to them. And then you give thanks to God because God gave you godly parents that love you. Submission is critical to these relationships. Now, what about friends? Here is where it's really the most clear. What about friends and neighbors and coworkers, people who don't really have a clearly defined authority in somebody else's life? Here we can really see how important submission is. So if our friend or our neighbor to the word of God, if they believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls and they have endeavored through the power of the Spirit to live a life that's in, in accordance to the Scriptures, we should submit to them. Our friends who have influence in our lives are a godly blessing. A friend that would use their position and privilege of having a relationship with you, if they would have the courage to come up and say, friend, this is not good. This is not the way Scripture calls us to be. If they would have the courage to do that, what good is it if we don't submit ourselves to the influence and authority of our brothers and sisters in Christ? It's no good. Relationships, authority and submission. That's the dynamic of a relationship. And if you find yourself in a relationship of submission to another, give thanks to God and open your ears. If you find yourself in a relationship of authority, open your mouth. If you find yourself in a relationship of submission, open your ears. This is how the church of Jesus Christ builds itself up together in love through the dynamics of relationship and authority and submission. Go and read Titus 2. You'll see it right there. Older men and older women setting examples for younger men and younger women. Teaching and building up the body of Christ. That's where revival the church from the Word of God, influencing each and every one of your hearts so that you recognize the problem of your sin, so that you recognize that something bad is coming for our sin, the judgment of God. But that fuels our repentance, that we turn away from our sinful ways. It jars us. It tears us away from our sinful desires so that we can turn back to God, so that we can 
that actions come truly from our heart and that in those relationships that call us back to God, we can know these things and do these things. That's revival. And it starts with every single one of you in the pew. It starts with us as a congregation, a covenant. And by God's grace and glory, it will go out of these doors through the Northeast Louisiana, bringing more people to know God, more people to know of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died on the cross for our sins so that the wrath of God would be poured out on him and not out on the people who believe in him. And brothers and sisters, as we endeavor on to conform our lives to Scripture, let us give thanks to God for those relationships, authority, and submission. And may God give us humble hearts that he might build us up in the faith and love of Jesus Christ for his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you build us up by the power of your word after you have humbled us because of our actions and sinful hearts. But Lord, we give you thanks that we know of these things that you have revealed to us our sin and your glory through the scriptures and the way we might walk in your ways and that you have given us relationships to build us up that we might endeavor on from generation to generation for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Having heard the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, let us rise and proclaim the Apostles' Creed. In whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of